We'll be continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And as such, we were in chapter 6, and we'll be continuing that exposition. Now, where we have arrived, we've arrived at a portion that our Lord and Savior and Master takes to have a discourse with the people after performing his two miracles. We will read verses 47 to 58 today as we will continue in his discourse. So with your Bibles, you may turn to John 6. We'll begin at verse 47 and conclude at verse 58. The word reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is to drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, in me and I in him. As the Father living, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Amen. Shall we now lift to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and we are mindful of the sheer notion, just the sheer fact that you, Lord, cared for your people so much so before the world began, you amongst the Godhead and the individuals involved, the Son and the Holy Spirit, decreed of which how you were going to redeem man, and of which, as the Master, your Son, has shown to this world, we then, as mankind, beheld his glory face to face. So in this, as we will now go through the discourse of which you'll have with his creation, be with thy servant as he teach and feed your sheep, and let them, the congregation, have a childlike love, willing mind to understand once again, Lord, you care for their souls. No matter where we are, no matter how we feel, you are ever working. And it's with this we say thank you. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, to bring your attention into focus here, and albeit it is indeed the next day, and our Master demonstrated two miracles of us as audience who's taken to the chapter to read and see 
we note the location and the particular individuals at play. And it's very interesting, it's very profound that the Lord moves John to make this apparent to us. Let's not lose that understanding. Now, here's something that I don't think is taken into consideration as compared to the other Gospels. When we note some of the miracles at play, and I think the Messiah and God and his providence to have our senior pastor, Pastor Rick, come out here and speak to us last week in regards to the way the miracles played in the scriptures. They all had a tent. They all had meaning. They, they were just not frivolous. He wasn't wasting his time. At what point do I perform this and there's not some sort of revelation needed to be made? And the revelation didn't not, did it come with just a fault to show a simple magic trick? No. It was to teach. It was to bring doctrine. It was to bring understanding to the individuals involved. So with that being said, John sharing with us this discourse is what makes it interesting about the personality of being that beloved apostle. Now, when I noted to you all the other accounts from Luke and Mark and Matthew, there is not this discourse to convey and explain how those particular miracles played in part. So with that being said, and the pastors before me did an excellent job, of which I definitely would mind you to go back and listen and take some additional notes, because now we're going to bring this all to the forefront. Let us see with this. Because as we come to verse 47, this, again, we're just in the middle of his discourse that he began by verse number 26 in John chapter 6. And in light, after our Lord and our Master then conformed the two miracles, and is the next day, Jason brought up a very good point about the story within the story. The individuals looking to seek the Messiah, especially given what transpired. And note, by verse 59, these things that were done, they found them at the synagogue. Now, I'm not going to make a note as to a detail of why it was at the synagogue in that particular, but at Capernaum, it's just, again, I guess I'm, I'm very used to trying to set up a setting, so I want to bring this to your forefront. Not thinking that he's <laughs> and still in the wilderness as a witch, but this discourse in particular was done at the synagogue in Capernaum. And what's interesting about how the way Jason actually, I said, I thought brought out pretty well the story within the story is that from this discourse in verse 26 and where we're going to come to, the master is making it very clear. You must come to him. We don't deny that. That's very paramount. But JP brought it very well. Unless the father who sent me draws him. The individuals who came and said, well, Rabbi, when did you come here? And our master, rather than answering to their liking, 
He said, you don't seek me because you were drawn to me by my father. You seek me because your belly was filled. You look with your eyes. And yet the spiritual thing, you cannot see what's before you. <laughs> I said it before and I will say it again. Many of the prophets look forward to that day when they beheld the Messiah face to face. And Pastor Ken made it very clear. The greatest moment in the history of mankind is when the God-man walked amongst his creation. So, you might be wondering then, where are we going to head as we continue in this little discourse? And by what I have just provided in my little soliloquy, of which, I want to give to you the understanding here that the Messiah, though the Jews mocked him, and I'm telling you, if you're looking at chapter 6 pretty well, they are not with any intention showing they have any spiritual ascension to their discourse with the Messiah. And that's why there is a story within the story. To discern spiritual things is not something that can be found on earth. And it's very important that we, as people seeing the book, must understand this. In fact, let me tell you why and show you as we continue. Let me start by verse number 46. The Lord states eloquently here, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Well, I'm plainly telling you. How, how, how much more can I plainly tell you? How can you see the Father except you are there to behold his glory? Well then, he states in the second clause in verse 46, He, this man, except the one who's from God, he has seen the Father. And then note what he's going to do in clarifying it, of which we're coming to in verse 47, by providing an affirmation. Truly, truly, this means... When he says truly, truly, and I think we've been saying it, but I don't know if you understand how serious this is. But when the Messiah says truly, truly, it means attention, please. It means I need your undivided attention. In fact, I'm telling you this and I'm book stamping it even further. I'm not going to lie to you. So you better get this and you better understand. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, but if you're familiar and you have the New King James text or the Geneva text in front of you, there's an insertion in which it would read in verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. And that's the connection. He is continuing to show his divinity. But how can they understand if they can't spiritually discern? Well, the, Joe, the Jews have set their hope in the scriptures. Remember in chapter 5? He stated by verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. It's those same scriptures that speak of me. 
Then therefore our master is showing true until the father by his spirit enlightened those who are naturally blind. <laughs> to seek God, you, you're in vain. You took your own merit. You can tell by the way a man speaks if they can spiritually discern. Oh, only God can judge me. Oh, is that right? Is that right? Only God can judge you. Well, surely he will. But I don't think you're going to like that judgment. Therefore, as this particular text is showing as well, Christ states that he must go before because God's majesty is so great and so splendor that even our own senses cannot reach nor understand him. To think that you can attain the knowledge of God outside of Christ is futile. How then will you know you're even in the faith? By verse 48 to 51, there's going to be interesting inference that the Messiah is going to make. The Lord speaks, and he states it so eloquently here, because it's funny that it's not so much the analogy that's at foot, but just what is amazing when one who spiritually discerns how you come to a new obedience when you read and hear the words come to life as you take to the scriptures. By verse 48, our Lord states, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. By verse 51, I am the living bread that came down of heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The contrast and comparison here that our Lord and Savior takes to this particular bread and particular manna, he is doing very well. But again, if you're not of the spirit, you can't spiritually discern this because all you're thinking is, man, I know how bread is made. It's amazing how it falls down out of the sky. And once I take a bite, yeah, this tastes like bread. So to which, what is the Messiah making this comparison of the bread? And why does he bring this in forefront, especially given that he takes two loaves and Two, I'm sorry, five loaves and two fish to feed an X amount of people. It's the story within the story. It's the miracle to the people in the particular. And in this, he's showing, I'm going to compare and show you again that not only is my father working, but I'm working now. And how do I do this? By chapter 6, he shows that what seems to be impossible is made possible because of me. It could have been a number of items that could have been done, but in his wise and holy counsel, he thought 
it was sufficient by five loaves and two fish. And in that particular miracle, he is telling to the people that you thought when Moses fed the fathers and God fed them, well, they were filled, as are you. But this bread that I'm going to give, unlike the fathers who ate and died, you will not die. And that's what he's showing here. He's going to make a comparison between the spiritual and the unspiritual, between his presence being here and the difference between man. Let's dig deeper because I want to make sure you understand this concept properly. We believe we are people of the book and we spiritually can attain what is being spoken of in the scriptures. So let me convey this in an easier manner. Because believe it or not, I can understand why they grumbled. Even by verse number 60, even the disciples grumbled. And they believed, didn't they not? For the scripture says, you teach a very hard thing. So this concept here is not easy. I'm going to tell you right now, this concept here, do not exaggerate. This is not easy. But it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's elegant how our Lord perfectly places it. So let's take some time to look at it with some more clarity. With some brevity first. I'm going to quote Calvin so you can see how we're going to push this forward. Calvin states here, because they abused the miracles for an improper purpose, he justly reproaches them with having a higher regard to their bellies than to the miracles. His meaning is that they do not profit by the works of God as they had or they should have done. For the true way of profiting would have been to acknowledge Christ as the Messiah in such a manner as to surrender themselves to be taught, to be governed, and to stay under his guidance. For what is the conclusion? To inspire to the heavenly kingdom of God. By verse 48, our Lord is making a declarative statement. It's not an unnecessary repetition. Yes, if you are familiar with the chapter, he states it before in John 6, 35. But again, it's like I said to you, when he says truly, truly, verily, verily, he wants your undivided attention. It is something he doesn't want you to miss and or lose. This is very important. That's not to say to negate everything else he has stated, but what he's trying to convey here is paramount to your obedience. It's paramount to the state of your salvation. He's not going to lie to you. He can't. 
So when he gives this conveyment, he wants to make it a point. Now, it is repetitive, right? So we're wondering, what could be the difference between what it was stated in verse 65 to what is done in verse number 48? Well, by, 60, by verse six, uh, 35, he states in that regard, in the original, I am the bread of life. But note the two clauses he gives at the end of it. He who comes to me will not hunger. And then the second clause, he who believes in me will never thirst. Does not Pastor Jason's uh, sermon in regards to the drawment of the individuals coming into focus here. See, everything that we've come to until now should have harmony. We're not trying to give standalone sermons. They should be a connection. Fit the puzzle within the pieces here. Now, if you're familiar when I brought to you the earlier portions, I noted to you that they did come to him, and yet he withdrew in the mountain early on in the previous day. So you must be wondering, well, Pastor, like the people were trying to be to trying to make him king. The Lord removed himself. Is this not what he wanted? Pastor Jason brought up a very good point. Under what guise did they come to acknowledge him? Did not Calvin state that? And by showing by the continuation by which John writes, he said, you came to me because your bellies were filled. Well, I don't want you to be disturbed because again, it's interesting. It's easy to do it to the people who quote unquote don't believe. I'm here to tell you, we can fall in that trap too. What? Whoa, 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 whoa. We've been moved by the Spirit. Of course, we should not act like them. Oh, is this right? John 2, 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Many observed his signs and which he was doing. But Jesus on his part by verse number 24, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. He does not need anyone to testify concerning men. For he himself knew what was in man. It's amazing here because in light of all this, we too can act and think we're coming to Jesus with the right intent. But in times, we could fall and slip right into that same mistake those individuals did. How so? <laughs> Our Lord and Savior makes it a right. Mankind does not, will not, and cannot do anything spiritually aright. In context from the old Psalms 14, 1 through 3, Psalms 53, 1 through 3, which makes note, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there's anyone who understands, to seek who seeks after God. 
Every one of them has turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one that does good, not even one. And Paul even adds on more. For what does he state by Romans 3, and in particularly in verse number 12? They have all turned aside. So then, can we fault them for not understanding? They're in their sins. And we too, who believe, can fall in that same trap. And that's why we have to safeguard. That's what we have to take in terms of making our calling and election sure daily. We too can fall into this trap. It's amazing because you think then, oh, you know what? Oh, well, I believe I assented to things that are being stated. Okay. In fact, I can even quote scripture. I can even bring scripture into this context. And I believe this scripture. Do you remember how they were speaking to the Messiah in that regard? I'll bring your attention. They asked, what then? By verse number 30 in John 6. What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and we may believe? What do you perform? For the scripture states, the scripture states, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. But does the Messiah deny them on this? No, he even goes a step further. They did eat this bread. But by verse 49, we find out, but they're dead. So what good did the bread do for them? But for only a temporal moment. What sustenance did they find in the bread other than to, quote unquote, fill their bellies? <laughs> the Lord is so perfect in how he shows this. We can be short-sighted. He can do something and we have no idea what it means. But how can we unless we're, we can spiritually discern what he's doing and how he's doing it? I want to note that because the adage that our father, <laughs> it's beautiful how he uses the Messiah to show this with the miracle and then giving the discourse, moves John in that he conveys, it is only in Christ and Christ alone that we must seek and everything, whether it's wisdom, Colossians 2, 3, whether it's to see the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2, 9, but this whole concept that he's giving in this discourse with the people to seek life, John 1, verse 4. To which... Speaking upon this, about life and giving of life, his comparison to show by verse number 50, this bread that unlike the bread that was given to your fathers and they died, the bread which comes out of heaven, the one that eats of it does not die. Now, as again, like I said, 
this is, can be very difficult. Again, you must be, be able to spiritually discern what the Messiah is trying to convey here. And with the work of the pastors, that is our job, especially being gifted to do this. And in fact, it's interesting because of all the things that could be done with conveying this sort of usage when it comes to the word or the use of bread in comparison to man, this is so profound that unlike the bread that withered away and it fell and came down from heaven, he makes this adage to show the bread that came out of heaven now has come. Because no, by John 1.14, the word has become flesh and dwelt among you. And what's so interesting in the concept, in the contrast, is that the bread they ate, in consideration of their own bodies, they died. I'm going to show you something, right? That this body, of which came out of heaven, death has no reign. Now, I don't want you to think it could be very easy to slip in this. And like I said, it, it's a necessity to be able to be, spirit, to be able to spiritually discern these things. But I don't want you to think that this bread, quote unquote, that was spoken of in the old is some sort of typology that the Messiah is making today. That's not true. Or there's not enough evidence as of right now to give it that sort of consideration, okay? But what I do want to make a particular note is that it's amazing how I tell you, and I, like I said, it's so important to be able to spiritually discern because when you talk about everything going back to the beginning of life, in this day and age, everybody likes to say it's a narrative. It's a story. Yeah, it could have happened, right? Well, you know, yeah, the flood could have happened, right? Yeah, God could have sent some fiery lava rocks to wipe out two cities. Yeah, it could have happened, right? This is why it's so important to be able to spiritually discern. Because you note what he speaks about with this particular bread. The bread he speaks about, unlike the ones that were in the old, they died. You're not going to die. It brings us back to the beginning in the garden. In my true humble opinion, it goes right back to the garden. How so? By chapter 2 in Genesis, by verse number 9, our Lord caused to grow every tree pleasing to the sight and good for food. In that same area, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the midst of them. By verse 16, when he commanded man, he stated, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That there was the command. Here in no shape, way, point, or form was Adam denied not to be able to eat from the tree of life. He needed the tree of life to live. He could not have died lest he 
disobeyed God. It's very simple. Because the latter clause in verse 16 states, For in that day you eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On that day, the day you disobey me, you are going to die. Alike the, those in the wilderness who ate the bread and died. So all Adam do, had to do was obey. But we know in God's providence and what he deemed to be, he does not. So then by providing the edicts, note what he does in Genesis 3, chapter 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, a man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, huh, note this, and now he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. The Christ is making it a point, a point of emphasis to them. He actually, he's actually calling them out. You guys are actually hypocritical. Because remember, you said you searched the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Well, I'm going to bring you back to the garden. Did you not remember what transpired with Adam? Did not Moses write and stated if Adam had reached and ate from the tree of life, he would have ate and lived forever? Does not the humanists go out and seek what they can do to expand their current life as they live on earth? Do they not seek that in the present condition that God has given to them, to the humanists by, their good, by God's goodness, but to us by his mercy and love for his people? Do they not seek to extend this life? That's all they see is what's in this life. What can he do for me now? But it's so profounding. He says, you guys do not discern to spiritual things. Because if you knew what I speak, I'm speaking about, you would believe me. You wouldn't need to grumble. And to the disciples, this should not cause you to stumble. And showing this in particular, I would love to make sure and see that you can see here that God is showing this particular harmony of which what Adam could not do, he is going to make a right. And it's interesting, due to our corruption and frame of thought, we find it difficult to believe because we're always carried away by our earthly worries. We're always carried away by our own sinful desires and our own concerns. But what our Lord is showing by these particular two verses in 51 and 52 of John 6, Christ alone is sufficient enough to give life because you won't find it in this life. You won't find what's spiritual because why? Everything can pass and wither away. But the bread, which the Messiah states in quote, the bread also which I will give 
for the life of the world is my flesh. Because in this bread, unlike the manna that the fathers ate, in this bread, the vine shows the essence in which is embodied in him. Life. And life in all facets. It's interesting too that he brings this portion of the flesh in regards to the secret power of which it bestows. It's interesting because I note to you by verse 7 in Philippians 2, he made himself to be the likeness of man. It's amazing. He could have taken to any other form. He could have just came in as a spirit with no body. But his office served a purpose that he had to bridge the gap. And I can even tell you, given this adage that he uses in using the bread of uh, the bread and its comparison to the contrast of the conditions of man as the spiritual against the unspiritual, he's not speaking in a parable. He's not. This is meant to be known. But again, how can you believe? How can you believe when you, if you are this individual who receives your own glory and think, oh, I know better. And me, I know. I can read the words. I know what these words mean. I know exactly what they're telling me. I understand this. Except if you're not taught by the one and true only God. John 5, 18, he states to the Jews, for this reason, they were seeking to kill him. Because he's telling them, I'm here. I am here. And to show you that I'm here, I'm going to tell you how me and the Father are one. He states, as you come to verse 40 in John 6, for this is the will of my Father. He doesn't come in his own glory. He's bookstepping it. This is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. What's amazing is that you ate the bread. Your fathers ate the bread and they died. Well, I'm going to do something even better. By the latter clause of verse number 40, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That takes life outside of you. Segwaying now to verse 53 to 54, our Lord and Savior states eloquently, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. By verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And again, I will raise him up on the last day. The essence of life found in the resurrection is in Christ. By verse 17 in John 5, he denotes to them that my father is working until now and I myself is working. And as I noted to you in the beginning when I, well, 
as we were going through, and I brought you in Genesis with Adam, what he could not do. The Lord stopped him from living forever. <laughs> so you have an expiration date, sir. So the conundrum remains then. Is there some sort of cannibalism that he's speaking of in regards to this? <laughs> That's the difference between those who cannot spiritually discern. Look how easy it is to just run to something because you just read it off a of paper. But for those who are of his people and those who are able to understand and give more context. Because again, I guess, like I said, I can understand. I can sympathize. Or if you want to use a better context, empathize though with the individuals. Because I understand what it feels like before you come to Christ not to be able to spiritually discern. If he makes this notion of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We as people should understand and come to a complete understanding about how we are to be drawn by him in faith. And when I mean by draw to him in faith, he's going to convey and show because we haven't arrived there yet. So the cliffhanger has not been provided, but he's going to come and show how his body was set aside and needed to be made for that one sacrifice. And by faith, do we understand? By faith, do we come to a complete knowledge to which he uses the analogy of eating my body and also understanding of drinking his blood? Because to the humanist, all they see is cannibalism. But to the Christian, they see life. All he has to do is continue to convey and show the revelation as we're going to get to it, as those things will come in harmony. Because again, it's like I stated. He is going to show you how he's continually with you. Unlike all their other gods who are dead or have a time lapse or are within, within another culture, he's been there before the world began. And he's continually with you, even now. How so does he need to do this? By him and him alone doing a work that we can't do, but he can. Why do I speak in these terms? That to understand this concept of taking to eating his flesh and drinking his blood is an understanding of what he's going to do, but we must understand this by faith. It's because even then, and like I said, it's not a parable. Unlike what he stated in Matthew 13, 13. Remember, he said, I speak to them in parables because they claim to see and do not see. They claim to hear and do not understand. So this is not a parable. This is a doctrine. 
he's trying to show them, your hope is not in me. It's the story within the story. You look at all the evidential things that are around you, but your hope is not in me. How can I say this? Well, note John 5.42. I know that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. By verse 45 in John 5, do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you set your hope. Remember? It's the words you read, right? It's the words you read. That's what you thought you had your eternal life in. You have it misconstrued. I mean, did you not quote to me? And I'm speaking rhetorically as if the Messiah would have stated. It wasn't that you who stated. It was our fathers who ate in the manna. And it, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven. Your hope was said in the wrong thing. And that's what we must be careful of. <laughs> you know, it's amazing because Paul even makes a statement in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5. He even brings up the spiritual food and the spiritual meat. But what did he say by verse number 5? And yet God was displeased with them. And they died in the wilderness, right? So they still ate. Or what's considered to be spiritual, quote unquote, and yet they died. So this concept and contrast that our Lord is trying to make and show in regards to this is that continuation of the story within the story. The Father and I are one. And you're trying to come to me to become one. Unless the Father draws you, like Pastor JP stated eloquently, you will never be drawn to me. I could feed you. I could show you this. I could show you that. It will matter nothing unless the Father draws you. You could have been there in this day and age and partake of the Lord's Supper. You could have been baptized at an early age. You could have been baptized by a confession given to the people. It would not matter. You would never believe unless the Father draws you. It's by faith. Do not be discouraged, though. Yes, it can have, this can feel. Because, again, like I said, Christianity is not normal. I'm sorry, I don't know who thought and told you that Christianity is normal, but taking five loaves and two, uh, two fish, that's not normal. To walk on water, that's not normal. So Christianity is not normal. But he conveyed and showed, you'll know if you're mine. My people hear my voice and they obey. To serve on this understanding that Jesus has is one with the Father and we too must have oneness with Christ in order to find life. I bring you from the harmony of the old, Isaiah 59, 16. Isaiah states, and he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him. And his righteousness upheld him. <laughs> but to show the harmony to the new. Hebrews 5 verse 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh. 
This is Christ he's speaking of. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and even tears to the one who's able to save him from death. And he was hurt because of his piety. He was a son. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And I'm sorry, I also included verse 9, but verse 9 is so important here. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation of eternal life mm, mm, mm. and it's amazing too because <laughs> right on time as our lord conveys and continues as he as we look now to the latter clauses of verse 56 to 57 he states it even plainly again. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 57. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So he who eats me. He's clarifying this now. He who eats me, he will also live because of me. No parable. I'm stating it to you plainly. So much so, he even goes back and concludes. He concludes. <laughs> he concludes what we've arrived to and received when we started this particular sermon and the early portions. I am this bread of life. And it's amazing. Because by verse number 50, of which this is the bread which come out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die, by verse number 58, he states and states so eloquently after he conveyed and explained, this is the bread which came out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Ah, when Pastor Jason returns, uh, we will continue and close, or maybe closing, but we will continue with the Gospel of John in chapter 6.